I'm going to invite Charmaine, who is reading for me this morning, and uh, she will introduce the reading. We're reading from 2 Samuel 24, um, verse 1 to 17. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are. While the eyes of the Lord, the king still, the king still see. Sorry, while the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it, but why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress and Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negeb of Judah and Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that, that, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall, th- shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was the and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
Then David said, I am in great distress. Let us fall in the hand of the Lord, for in it there is great mercy and grace. What a word. Lord Jesus, indeed, in your hand there is great mercy and grace. May we know that grace this morning. For your name's sake, amen. So, we are nearing the end in the study, in our study on the life of David. We are drawing closer to the end of our study. And so far in this study, and for more so fairly recently, we have been discovering the extraordinary grace of God and the gospel that weaves its way through the lives of broken and faulty people, especially David. That's what we have been discovering in the recent weeks in this study on the life of David. The grace and the gospel that is unconditionally making its way in the lives of broken and faulty people, of which David will not be the least of them. Maybe he will say he is the chief. What we've been learning so far is that David is not a model for a trouble-free and sin-free life. If you're looking for a life that is trouble-free, or a life that is sin-free, David is not your model. But instead, David is a window through which we see God's mercy and God's grace in action. So as we've been exploring David, we've been discovering God's redemptive story through the life of David. Now, the story before us carries that theme, that theme beautifully because indeed it is a story about the gospel. Maybe you may say, I'm pushing the envelope a, a little bit too far. How can we find the gospel in the Old Testament? How can we find the gospel in 2 Samuel? Well, we find the gospel at least in two themes that we, will pick, that we will be concerned with in this chapter. The first one is God's sovereign grace and mercy. And I want you to keep those words together, sovereign and grace together, not grace without sovereign. Sovereign speaks of God's bigness. It speaks of God's supremacy. It speaks of the fact that God is in charge. And if you read this chapter, you are not going to miss that idea that God is indeed in charge. And because he is in charge, from time to time, he gets to remind his people who are called by his name by just allowing his backhand right in between their eyes. I told you this, and I'm going to tell you again, my mother was very good with that one the backhand, without even looking at you. 
And my middle brother was always the recipient of her backhand. So while God is in charge, he is big and he is supreme, but he is also merciful. That's the theme this chapter offers us. He's great, he's supreme, he's in charge, yet he is also gracious. So, we discover the gospel in Samuel, in 2 Samuel 24, by looking at God's sovereign grace. Secondly, this chapter offers us a recovery of the correct understanding of who God is. This chapter helps us to recover God's true nature. And I'm so grateful to Jono and the worship team as they really brought that theme very loud and clear about who God really is, the true nature of God. And we repeat it again and again, and I hope you were listening to yourself as you were singing those words, that is who you are. This chapter helps us with that. Now, a couple of years ago, Don Carson, or D.A. Carson, as he is known, gave a lecture. In fact, before I get there, when I was a student, we learned from the, the students, the senior students, that one of the ways in which you get good marks from your professors at the college is by referencing John Piper, Don Carson, John MacArthur, and da 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 And so we looked for Don Carson and D.A. and John Piper just, just to impress our lecturers. And so I got to introduced to Don Carson by trying to impress the lectures. Now, he gave a lecture a couple of years on the title called, What is the Gospel? And he defines the gospel in the following ways. The first one, he says, the gospel is Christological. Now, don't allow that to put you off because you don't use that word every day. In simple terms, it means the gospel is Christ-centered. Is Christ. At the center of the gospel is Christ. Then he goes on to give a quote from John Stort. This is Don Carson. He says, the gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. If we have not preached Christ, the gospel is not preached. So when we speak of the gospel, at the center of it is the person of Christ. It's who Jesus is. But not only the person of Christ, but his death and his resurrection. You see, because in his death, he embraces and he does an exchange for us. He takes the curse and the punishment that was meant for us, he takes it upon himself. And he gives us life and life abundant. And in his resurrection, he declares victory over death. And that is the future you and I have. That of course, on this side of eternity, death is still a reality. But there will come a day where there will be no more death, 
No more pain, no more tears, because all that will be wiped away. In the book of Romans, or in the letter to Romans, speaks of the three groanings that are happening simultaneously. The groaning of us as human beings, the groaning of the creation, and the groaning of the spirit. All groaning because life on this side of eternity is not completely comfortable. It's full of challenges. So the gospel is Christ-centered, not only his person, but also his death and resurrection. Now, the one that I want to pick up particularly because it ties in with our message is the second definition Don Carson gives. It says the gospel is theological. And by that, he means it brings us to God. And what he argues there, he says, it doesn't make sense, which we do this a lot, to separate the mission of Christ from the mission of God. The mission is the fact that why Christ came on earth. He came to fulfill a mission. And sometimes in our preaching of the gospel, we forget that Christ came not by his own initiative, but he came because God so loved the world that he sent his son. So, so the mission of Christ is, is, is the fulfillment of God's mission. We can't separate the two. The mission of the Son is the mission of the Father. You see, because why is that? Because all sin is sin against God. The most offended person when you and I sin is God. He's the most offended person. Why is that? Because he created you and I in his image. He's made us to be like him. And he's given us capacity to be like him. I remember the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. When he was giving a talk in UK, talking about the Truth and the Reconciliation um, uh, Commission, as he ends this in front of students, one of the universities in London, he says, you see us human beings, we are such an amazing creation in, in his way that no one can imitate. He says, on the one hand, we're capable to do wonderful, kind, and good things to one another. But on the other hand, we are also capable of doing harmful and hurtful things to one another. You see, because we are made in the image of God, and because we are made in the image of God, we can do good to one another. But while sin is a reality, we also do harm to one another. 
So when we sin, we sin, first of all, to God. Now, the mission of Christ then is always to reconcile us with God. The mission of the Son is to reconcile you and I with the Father. It's to bring us back home. That's what repentance is. It's to turn away from the direction that takes you away from home. And you come back to the Father. And maybe the question for you this morning, have you done that? Have you turned back to your Father? Have you embraced the mission of Christ and said yes to Christ and in saying yes to Christ, you are turning back to your Father? You're being embraced. Last week we studied a very heart-hurting story or heartbreaking story of Absalom being brought back to the city without being embraced by his father. For two years, David was able to avoid any contact with his son. Whoa, that's scary. He said, yes, let him come to Jerusalem. One of the commentators said, Jerusalem is too small. Surely David did an extraordinary work to avoid his son. Here is the good news for you. God, the Father, is not on a mission to avoid to interact with you. Christ is his way of saying, come, come. So let me, let me, let me tie that up and say, when we then call ourselves a gospel-centered church, which is one of our core values, all we are saying is that we believe that one of our vocations, I hope you are impressed by that word, are you? <laughs> one of our callings, primary callings as the people of God is to see people reconciling with their father. That's our mission as the church. When we call ourselves a gospel-centered church, we're saying we want to see people reconciled with God, but not only reconciled, but we want to see them living a life of obedience to Christ. Not only living the life of obedience to Christ, but growing in faith and becoming like Jesus. What a vision. What a vision. Nothing can beat that. Imagine waking up every morning saying, the Spirit of God, will you help me today to be like Christ? To be like Christ. Will you present opportunities for me to manifest the person of Christ today? Today. Imagine praying that prayer every morning. The gospel is Christ-centered. The gospel is theological. That means it's God-centered. This chapter helps us to recover that second aspect of Don Carson's definition of gospel. The theology of God, who God is. Why is it important for us 
to know who God really is. Because in life there are questions that we cannot answer. There are questions that puzzle us, especially in relation to the sovereignty of God. One of those questions is the sovereignty of God and human suffering. If we say God is in charge, he is great and is supreme, why is he allowing suffering to happen? Now, I'm asking that question not because I have an answer for it, but I'm with you in that same question. It's one of the questions that puzzles us. The, the, the question of God's sovereignty and justice, or as we like to call it, fairness. We all know that it doesn't take long for children, if they're playing, to shout out and say, it's not fair, it's not fair. You know what they're imitating? They are mimicking us. We also are looking for fairness and crying for fairness. And that's another question that we struggle with. Now, when we can't answer those questions, what helps us? Now, this chapter that we've just read leaves us with more questions than answers. This chapter adds to the list of your questions. Can I say this? Questions are not bad, eh? They are part of our spiritual growth. There is a, a New Testament scholar um, I forgot her name, amazing um, thinker. She tells a story when her professor, when she was a student, says to her, I've got a, a book <laughs> next to my, to my computer in my office, and that book is as old as the time when I was a student. It's full of the questions about different texts of the Bible and the times about the experiences I'm facing. And the professor of this, um, of Paula, yes, her name is Paula, says that the list of those questions have been growing over the years. So questions are not necessarily bad. So one of the questions that we have as we read this chapter is, who incited David to count the people? The text says God incited David. But in Chronicles 21, we are told Satan incited David. Now, that's another word that we don't use every day, incited. We use it, in fact, the, 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 the journalists use it a lot when they refer to Julius Malema. <laughs> that when he did that, he was inciting this or whatever. So, so Julius brings that word a little bit closer to our everyday. If you want to know what it is, just Google Julius, then you will see. <laughs> But here it is, incited. I even spell it, spelled it wrong in the beginning because I don't even know it. Who incited David to count the people? Verses 1 said, God incited David. 
Now, if God incited David, why then is he angry at David for counting the people? If God caused David, if God encouraged David to count the people, why then is he angry at him? Can I tell you something? I have no answer for that question. I don't. But there is another question that comes as we read this text, this chapter, is... Does God have a right to do what he does in this chapter? If he's the one who initiated this whole drama, shall I call, which took nine months counting the people, then does he have a right to punish the people as he does? Maybe you heard that question. I heard it, somebody whispering it as Shaman was reading. You are in the good company. Now, when we can't answer those questions, what helps us is to know who God is, what is true of God. Psalm 145 says, the Lord, which means God, is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Are you wondering who God is, how God is like. The psalmist tells us that he is righteous in all his ways. In other words, he always does what is right. Does it feel like that all the time? No. But you know what? When you know the truth about that person, then you find rest. And that's why I loved that image that Hele painted for us of Psalm 23, because it tells us of who God is. He's the God who walks ahead of us and clear the enemies and flatten the stumbling blocks that seeks to stand on our way. But he doesn't just walk ahead of us and drag us. He comes and lock and walk alongside with us and feel what we feel. And he walks behind us as well. So when you come in your life, in places where you have more questions than answers, remember who God is. He always does what is right and kind in all his works. When you come to an event in your life that you have more questions than answers, where you cry out and say, I don't understand why things should be this way, remember God. He always does what is right. That's why the right understanding of who God is is important. It helps us in times when we find ourselves puzzled. Let us remember that God doesn't cause evil. It is against his his nature. However, he may permit it. He may allow it to happen but he is not a source of it. That's what we 
we learn when we read the story of Job. Satan went behind Job's back and gossip about him to God. And he asked the permission to give him a bit of pain. He asked that permission from God. And after a dialogue, God said, yeah, go. So God does not tempt us, but he may test us. Tempting doesn't come from God. It comes from our own desires. That's what James tells us. It comes from our fallen nature. It comes from me always thinking, if I would have that, I would be more happier. And then guess what? I get it. And then I realize I'm still not happy. Then I look for the next And then I'm living this life of being discontent. So tempting does not come from God. It comes from myself. And it gets to be more encouraged by the enemy. So God doesn't tempt us. He may test us as he did test Job. This is, is from Alistair Begg. He says, when, it, when we come to the Bible, it is the Bible that understands us more than we ultimately understand the Bible. What he is saying there is that God, in his nature as a sovereign God, he doesn't owe us an explanation. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We need the right understanding of who God is in order for us to be able to deal with difficult questions of life. I'm going to jump and go to the grace that we see in this chapter. I'm going to leave the senses the reason why David counted the people. There's many speculations. Some say he counted it in order just to make himself feel good. It's an egocentric drive. Or maybe it was a lack of faith in his part. He thought to himself, God can only fulfill his promises if him, David, supported him by giving him a good number of men who can carry sword. But nevertheless, what we're learning is that what David did by counting the people of God, he was wrong. Joab, that we learned about last week, that he was a get-it-done kind of a guy. He was not a guy with a sensitive conscience. For the first time here, he says, David, what you're doing is wrong. But we're told that the word of the king prevailed against Joab. But the story doesn't end on that note. It ends on a beautiful one. It ends in verses 10 by David's heart being struck after he had numbered the people. He said, I have sinned greatly 
in what I have done. David doesn't say, the the devil made me do it. No, his heart and his conscience is not asleep. His conscience is awake, is alive. And may I say this? It is dreadful for any one of us if our conscience goes to sleep and we are not easily prompted by God through his spirit. Here, David is still within the reach of God's spirit and his conscience can still be triggered and be provoked. The prophet comes the following day. Already by the time he comes, David's conscience is alert to the fact that what I have done is wrong and I have sinned against God. Earlier on when we were studying David, David needed prophet Nathan to confront him with his sin in order for him to know that what I had done was sinful. But this time David is aware of his own sin. For us who are the New Testament Christians, we are told that the Holy Spirit, when Jesus left, he he didn't leave us alone as often. He left us with the Holy Spirit, and one of his functions is to convict us of our sin. And I want to say to you, if you still find your heart convicted of your own sin, don't run away from that. Embrace it. It's a gift of God. It means your heart is still reachable. It's one of the central pieces of the gospel that the Holy Spirit can work in us and bring us to a place where we are aware of our own brokenness and of our own need for grace and mercy. We are never, we can never outgrown the need of God's grace and mercy. If you find yourself convicted, bless God for that. Of course, you don't feel like that because you are now, you feel small, you feel this is me and maybe I must go and look at that person in the eye and say to them, I'm sorry. But let's remember that the primary person that we sin to is God. And then this prophet, his name is God. We must be grateful that we are not in America because they, their pronunciation of God is God. So I wonder how do they deal with this one when they see God coming to David to tell him about God. So it was God coming to David to tell him about God. But this prophet comes to David in the morning the following day after his heart was struck by his own sinfulness. And he says to him, look, buddy, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got an offer here for you. It's three years of famine. It's three months of you running away of war. And it's three days of pestilence. It's a dark space to be at. Which one do you choose? Maybe if it was a game, I would say, can we start again a little bit? Then 
I know. These are, these are all severe. One commentator says, the, the, the shorter the period, the severe the content of what David is going to face. There is no escape. This tells us two things. One, it tells us of God's holiness, and it tells us of the ugliness of sin. God is holy, and in him there is no shadow of, de- of darkness. And sin is ugly. This is what it invites in our lives. I love David's choice. He chooses neither of these three options. He says, I'd rather fall in the hand of the Lord. So you're here today, maybe it's your first time, you don't come to church regularly. Maybe you feel that your life is in the dark place. Nothing is working out in the way you wish. You are in the company of David. And David said, I'd rather fall in the hand of God, for there is mercy in it. And later when we come to the Lord's table, which is a symbol of God's mercy and grace, extended to us, in the person of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, when his body was stripped naked and he was punished and cursed on our behalf and his blood came out so that by it we may be washed and be made clean. That's what we are doing when we partake on these elements. We eat and we drink with thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. And as we pray, I want to read these words of this hymn. And if you want to follow, you can see them behind me. They say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to you for dress. Helpless, to you for grace. Foul I to foundation fly. Wash me, Savior, Savior, or I die. So as you wash us with his blood tonight. And Lord, we thank you for those words of that hymn, that you will wash us with your blood today. Nothing in our hands, but simply to your cross we cling. We thank you for your cross. Amen.